Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hi, I'm your host, Corey Peckford. On today's Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing Mohsen Saeed. My big takeaway from our conversation was how he was able to apply his university degree. So he studied economics and then he applied that. He took a course during his economic studies and it had to do with real estate markets and that inspired him to actually take the plunge and take his passion, what he learned in school, and basically present that to his family and get them on board. So hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Mohsen Saeed, I just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Awesome that you're here. We were chatting a little bit before the recording started. Could you just tell me some stuff about yourself and how you got into real estate investing? Hi, Corey. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great that we're finally doing this. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit, a little bit briefly. So I'm from Bangladesh. We moved here. So me, my dad, my mom, and my sister, we moved uh, at first in uh, Toronto in 2010. Yeah, 2010. And then uh, we lived there for about two years and then moved to Calgary in 2012. And so when I moved to Toronto from Bangladesh, I was in grade seven. And then in grade nine, uh, we moved to Calgary. Okay. And how I got into real estate, it was really cool because I was doing my undergrad at the University of Calgary and my major was economics. So uh, I think it was in my second year where I had a course that was on uh, real estate markets in Canada. That was my first ever introduction into anything related to real estate. That's cool. That's awesome. So when you went to university and you took this economics, you went in and studied, you did a presentation, right? Kind of go through that and just explain how that influenced your real estate investing decisions and you know, kind of dig into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. In economics, like one of the big, big parts of economics is the study of population and the study of movement. So the study of movement of population. So one of the key factors of economic success is the ability for individuals to be able to move around within their like designated country uh, freely, which Canada provides because like I can decide to move to Ontario or Vancouver or Manitoba anytime I wanted and there wouldn't be any real restriction, at least from the government side. So yeah, during my undergrad, I had that one course, which I just mentioned, and it was a quick, short presentation on the real estate market of Canada and whether the real estate market at that time, it was like absolutely booming in Ontario and Vancouver, NBC to an extent, and whether it reflected like a similar kind of bubble that happened in 2008 in the US, which led to the financial crisis and then the crash. And so that was one of my first taste of real estate, first taste of university life, first taste of presentations, which was really exciting. So uh, I dove like right into it. And my presentation kind of went like, I mainly started with the uh, amount of people that was coming into Canada when I, when I started doing my research for that class. And so what ended up happening is for the first two years, all I really learned is the importance of population within a country and its success. That was naturally where I started from. So what I ended up seeing is our immigration policy in Canada is very, very friendly. And during those years, Alberta was taking, like, honestly, a huge, huge uh, blow to its economy from the oil price crash since 2014. 
And so the uh, interprovincial migration, it was all just going towards Ontario and BC. And that's kind of like what my research showed, which makes sense. So yeah, this yeah. kind of confirmed to me that the housing market, the increasing in the price in those two provinces, it's not due to like just artificially raising up prices. It's because you have a product that's limited and there are a lot more demand for that product. Then you have a supply of it, which supply and demand just gives you that upwards of price pushing effect. And that was like my first clue into thinking, okay, this may not be a bubble in the typical sense that we know in 2008. So that's also when I realized that there has to be other factors than just simply people moving here, because why would you want to move there? There has to be a reason you want to move there, not just because. It's just yeah. And so that kind of led me to see what's called a spillover effect. And so I can kind of explain the spillover effect very quickly in a way that you have like a bunch of apples in say like one bucket and you have one apple, which is there's some bugs inside, it's rotten, it's not very good. And so what happens when that bacteria in that one apple, it's done eating that apple, it goes to the next apple. So it sort of like spills over into the next apple and the next one and the next one after that. So in that way, I want you to think of it in the exact opposite term. <laughs> there's a good apple. Think of it that the good apple kind of makes the other bad apples good. So that kind of way is what attributed to a lot of VCs growth. When we take a look at just across the border to Seattle, at that time, Seattle is like a great place for innovation. It's close to Amazon. Amazon basically owns that city, right? It's uh -huh. their it's there Starbucks is pretty big there too. <laughs> Starbucks, Amazon, yeah. yeah. It's their home ground, you might say. I'm a big sports yeah. fan, so it's, it's yeah, their home yeah. ground. So then that's where I kind of started to realize that if you have success in one place, it doesn't just stay limited to that, you know, like it spills over, it goes to like in all directions. And in that case, I believed that Vancouver and surrounding areas presented a bigger market for those types of corporations, that type of success, right? You have the American market, American population, and then you have Canada. Like we have our own market here. Granted, it's nearly not as big as American one, but it is a market that they have access to. So what happened is, you know, like Seattle, they built it up, they built it up, they built it up. It's great now. So some of it spilled over to Vancouver. So people in Seattle started going into Vancouver. They started seeing, oh, we have really, really secure type of investments for our products. What we can do is set up like companies there. And then we can provide housing there. And so people started going to there. And then Vancouver started experiencing its own job boom. And then in terms of like property boom, people started coming. They were attracted to these new jobs that were being offered. So that kind of like drove the population there. And then if we think about Toronto in the same way, Toronto has this really nice street name called the Little New York or New York Light, right? Just because of its close proximity to New York and all that success just kind of spilling over into Toronto as well. So this is where I can kind of like combine the broader economic factor of the importance of the population with the flow of the population. And then I kind of like presented my research to my class saying, this is not a bubble simply because it's an organic demand, not like a self kind of like inflated bubble where the housing prices are just expecting to get higher. They are getting higher simply because there's more demand for people there. And why are the people moving there? You have jobs, you have security, you have a lot of opportunities there. Where does this opportunity come from? A lot of it came from overseas. A lot of it came from spillover. And then for sure, the government in those places made some really good decisions to house that growth. 
And what ended up happening is it created a really good environment for people to thrive in and success in, which I can say that with confidence because Canada does not generate enough population on its own. So I believe we'll always have a high immigration policy. And so even I think during COVID, um, may have been just a little bit before COVID was declared that we'll have about, I think, like four to five million immigrations in the upcoming years. So that's the last time I checked. I believe due to that, we'll always have people wanting to come here. And mm-hmm. then I started thinking about, you know, like, why would people want to come to Canada? What if, like, you know, we have the immigration policy open, but people just decide they don't want to come here. But they do want to come here because we have really, really good labor laws, human rights. We have an amazing financial system that's backed. So you know that when we have, like, foreign investments, when we have investors investing in the housing market here, it's safe. They yeah. feel good because these securities are not in those countries where the immigrants are coming from. Plus so healthcare, they, the universal healthcare, healthcare system. Absolutely. Our justice system, for sure. Like in a lot of yeah. these countries, they don't have those benefits. So they come here for a better, secure life. For sure. Which always just, as an economist, it just translates to demand for me. That was an awesome example with Seattle impacting Vancouver. How do you kind of see with Calgary? How would you apply that to what you see going on in Calgary's economy and maybe some of the diversification that's happening? And because obviously Calgary has been a really strong oil and gas driven economy. Do you see some kind of economic things changing there, benefiting Calgary? For sure. For sure. Yeah, so that's a very good point. I believe if we go back to the spillover effect, right? I think what's happening right now, and I think it's happened, I want to say, like, within the last year, especially since COVID hit, like, last few years, what we've seen is the spillover effect taking place in those two provinces that I just spoke about, BC and Ontario. What happens there is we hit a certain point where, like, you know, you have an X amount of land, and then you have a lot of people trying to fit in there. So what happens is you have like a certain price for that land. So someone comes here, you can afford it. And it gets to a certain point where like that price just keeps going higher, 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 and higher. And so what happens to the next person coming in? They simply can't afford it. So where do those people go? They go to the next best place. So I believe that due to that, you know, like I can't afford BC. I can't afford Ontario. Where can I go? I'll go to Calgary. (laughs) And so that's kind of my argument to myself. It's because like, when you consider things like minimum wage, right? And that's a big point for economists. We like to think of like the general population, not the top 20% or even the top 1%. We like to think of the minimum wage factor. So with a minimum wage, you would find it really, really hard to afford a living in Ontario or BC. Whereas uh, I'm sure those places didn't start out that way. At one point, it was very easy to live on minimum wage in those places. But again, you have that capacity that the a land can take. So what happens is do you have that minimum wage where you can afford to live in Calgary on a single salary, which if you're just working minimum wage and you don't take a lot of vacations, you're just living by yourself, it is possible to live there. And so that's a big attraction for people to come here because one of the big things is they want to know if we have a job or not. Yeah, you'll have a job here. You can work minimum wage. And another interesting thing, and I believe this kind of came into play recently with our technology advancements and our work from home mandates, is remote workers in the economy. Mm -hmm. So with remote working, what you can really do is hold a job down in BC. You know, you get paid BC wages. If your company has like policy where you have to be physically located in BC to earn BC wages, that's a little bit different and there's some gray area there. But for right now, what I know from my understanding and from my own job as well, I can see is 
you work for a place in BC, you earn BC wages, but you don't want to pay like BC living costs. It's astronomical, right? So what you can do is come to Calgary, find a place that you can afford, like a house with 300K and a tech salary. That's very easy. So these kind of remote workers, we can come to Calgary and we have cheap rent. We have an international airport. We have Banff. And another thing is we have one of the lowest tax rates in the country. So at 5% GST, no HST. And it's very lucrative that people come here to live, right? Because um, another thing we economists like to do is deduct, uh, what do you call it? Law of deduction. Oh, actually it's called opportunity costs. So if you were to come live in Calgary, you're foregoing living in BC, in Ontario, in Manitoba. Now we've, since we've already established living in BC, living in uh, Ontario is too expensive. You have Calgary or you have Alberta, you have Manitoba, you have Nova Scotia, you have Saskatchewan. So if you were to ask me, would I rather live in Alberta or in those places? Like no offense to any of those provinces, but I'm taking Calgary. <laughs> we have, if for a lot of people that don't know, like last one I checked at the Stats Canada, I think Calgary on average gets less centimeters of snow than Montreal in an overall year, just because yeah, have, yep. you know that wipes it away. It doesn't, it's, it stays cold for a few weeks and then, you know, it's nice. Yeah. The kind of stuff we see in Calgary, you know, Bath, Lake Louise, Jasper, these are the kind of things that make you want to come here and stay here because for sure. The skiing too. So there, there's so many winter activities you can be doing close exactly. to Calgary. Yeah. Exactly. You can see the appeal and the cost of living now. We've been seeing the last two years, like you were saying, about with people working remotely, is if they owned a property in Ontario, they're selling it, you know, pulling mm-hmm. that equity and basically coming to Calgary paying cash and having money in the bank for a property that would be considered a discount compared to those markets, right? It's been driving absolutely, the Calgary absolutely. market. In my, in my personal experience as well, I've seen, uh, because I manage about like four properties here that I also own, I'm having so many people coming in from Ontario, from BC, they're ready to pay six months in advance. Can I just get a place? I'll be buying a house too. So they have enough equity to rent a place out for six months while they're searching for their next home. So these are all good signs because mm-hmm. you'll have people coming here, which will in turn create jobs, create better roads, better transportation. This is why I feel like our economic outlook for the next five years, I feel like five years is a little bit of a tight window, you know, like to think about it. I like to think in terms of like 10 years, like that's the kind of like long-term horizon I look at. I believe in the 10 years, like I don't see demand slowing down at all, honestly. Yeah, for sure. So. Economists have this term, it's called gig economy. Could you go kind of explain that and how it applies to Calgary? Yeah, for sure, for sure. The gig economy, it actually just came into effect just recently. And it's a really, really cool thing where it's sort of like not your permanent role, but it's also more like a contract type of job. But you get to decide like when you want to work it, when you don't want to work. And uh, I personally love the gig economy thing. I just want to be clear, there are a lot of economists who think that gig economy in the long term is bad for the overall economic system because um, the reason they think that is uh, a company can always just you know like go bankrupt like say for example uber just decides like oh yeah we don't want to do this anymore right like we don't have enough funds we're not really profitable yet it's kind of like car to go they were so popular in calgary for you know a number of years and then they just disappeared yeah exactly exactly that so what happens is uh If those companies decide to go up, you have a lot of workers that are depending on that income. Where do those workers go? There's not much place for them to go. And then you have a bunch of like labor market where 
they need to find jobs. And because, you know, they were doing those short-term contractual jobs, then what ends up happening is they're not qualified for longer-term employment. But me, on the other hand, I believe in technology. I believe in innovation. I believe the gig economy is here to stay. And that's just because we have a lot of demand for these types of things. Like people want to be their own boss. They want to do their own type of stuff. And I would much rather take an Uber than take a taxi. So just <laughs> Well, you know, you've probably noticed this. If there's a concert in town, that kind of thing, or it's, it's mm-hmm. late at night, how the price will just escalate, right? It'll exponentially climb. And that's when yeah. it's kind of nice to have a taxi app on your phone or you just flag down a taxi driver, right? Because at least it's a set price. It's not going to be based on demand. Yeah, yeah. There's ups and downs for those. But over the long term, I would say if I'm going somewhere, not at a concert, just, you know, like I want to say 80% of my time, I would much rather take an Uber. It's fast. It's quick. I know I'm safe on the Uber app and everything. Yeah. Not to say that I'm not safe on a taxi, but <laughs> yeah, anyways, um, okay. no, I so, think like the, the importance of gig economy in a city like Calgary is because we don't have the best public transportation infrastructure here, just because I think our train lines only runs like two lines, right? Two or three. That's maybe. right. It goes There's east, plenty. west and north, yeah. south. Yeah. And only it's, you know, certain sides or certain areas. Yeah. Quadrants. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah, I live in the Northeast. So what I can hear is for like the longest time for about like 10 years or so, they're building another station here and it's, <laughs> it's still up there. So for example, gig workers like food delivery system, you have like Uber rides or you have uh, like car to go, any kind of these like gig workers, I believe at least until our public infrastructure is improved, it's here to stay. And I believe that these types of like this economy, this labor market made up of these short-term contracts or freelance work as opposed to permanent jobs, it's also lucrative for people to want to move here. So for example, if I were to live in Ontario and come to Calgary, one of the biggest things I'd look at is, can I afford the place or not? And so if I don't have a good job lined up, it would be very hard for me to make that decision to come here. Whereas with this gig gig economy, what you can do is you don't have to worry about that. If I'm driving an Uber or if I'm delivering food or if I'm doing both in Ontario, I could decide to come here and do exactly the same thing. It's not really a detractor for me in terms of like, can I afford to live there? Like, yeah, I can afford to. I would afford to live there. I could live there easier and better than I would on that same salary in Ontario. Yeah, for sure. So as an economist, with inflation obviously rising and then we have interest rates that have climbed up, what kind of impact do you see that having on Calgary real estate market? Yeah, honestly, I believe these are all very, very temporary. So right now, I do not believe that the interest rates are anything other than inflation. So we need to control inflation. And that's why we have an amazing central bank. They're not influenced by the government in any way. So they have full autonomy in the decisions that they make. In general, they are all good for the citizens. So Inflation, interest rates, they will be handled well. So the rule is, as inflation goes up, you have to raise interest rates. Interest rates go up, people are discouraged from borrowing money. What happens is the inflation kind of goes down and government has good control over it. So in all in all, it's very, very temporary. And as much as we don't like to admit it, we are influenced by the U.S. in a very, very like large way. So I don't believe that in any case, this will be anything other than like a two-year Generally, when central bank raises the interest rate, it takes about like three to four quarters for the desired results to take effect. So I want to say over the next two years, I believe inflation will be handled really well. And I actually checked it this morning, one of my favorite websites to go to for news, it's called ATB OWL, the economics newsletter they release out. 
And what happened is uh, our month-over-month -month inflation actually decreased from last month. Again, like it wasn't a huge decrease. It went from 7.8 to, I think it was uh, 7.4 or 5 maybe, but it did go down. So the desired effect that these interest rates are having, it's good. Like, as yeah. soon as inflation goes down, I don't see it a problem. And we've seen fuel prices pull back as well. Like, you know, at the when you go to fill up, it's like, oh, that's, mm -hmm. we're saving probably 40, 45 cents a liter right now. Yeah, yeah, they did go down. I remember I was in Korea and then I came back. Fuel prices went from 160 to 184. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what, what <laughs> <Yeah>. happened here? <laughs> For sure. So I'd like to kind of transition now. I guess if you could explain, like, because you got the university, you know, education, right, as an economist, and then you studied real estate markets when you finally actually bought a, your first investment deal. How did you take the schooling and apply it? Yeah, I'll be honest, it was very exciting. And I know a lot of people, they're like, oh, I was, I was very nervous. But something about like, if you study something well enough, you kind of get this confidence, right? So when I was pitching this idea to like my dad, again, like I want to say, I would not have been able to do this without like the amazing support of my family. When I approached my dad with this saying, I built like a presentation and like an informal one, not a, not a full on like uh, Google slides or anything, but I kind of like told him, Hey, I think right now is a good time. We have some money saved up. My parents, when they immigrated here, I think they saved like every single cent they could have. They worked like two, three jobs and they were amazing. In no way would I be able to do this without their help. So I kind of like went to them and I told them, like, I kind of explained the same thing I did to you. I think we'll have a large chunk of people coming here, a good inflow. And, you know, we have some money saved up. I have some money saved up. We pulled it together. I think this is a good, this is a good thing. And at first, my uh, parents, they had this kind of like similar reaction. They were like, oh, is now the right time? I was like, listen, like, trust me, I got this. <laughs> I studied this. And I was very confident. I was really excited. And I totally did this, like, by the book, honestly. So I just went into Google and I just searched up cheap houses to buy in Calgary, good houses to buy in Calgary. And it just gave me, like, all these links. And he gave me like those MLS listed. I didn't do any private deals or anything. I had no advantage other than just my research and the kind of techniques I learned how to do the research from university. So I met up with a realtor. We looked at some appointments. We looked at some apartments at first. And before that, what I did was, again, very simple online, just went and got pre-approved. Rates were super low. One advantage I guess I had over like others would be my understanding of rates and what that meant in historical terms. So when I hear like rates have never been as low as 40 years, to me, that's opportunity to borrow <laughs> at this rate. So whereas you have someone like my friends or family, they're like, oh, rates are this low. That means like what's going on here. It's not really safe. I'm like, no, now is the safe term. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. so, I, so I got pre-approved from the bank. I made some appointments. We looked at some houses and then uh, actually we started with apartments first. And this is where my learning from on the job began. So when I was looking at the houses and I started looking at apartments and condos. So for apartments, I was able to learn that these were one of the first units of real estate that go down in value. The first one to go down in value in terms of a downturn, a recession, anything of like a negative shock. I learned this from talking to my realtor and talking to some experts, talking to some mortgage advisors as well. And so naturally I asked, oh, so if it's the first one to go down, does that mean like when markets begin to turn, are those the first ones to go up? They're like, no, they're the last ones to go up. <laughs> and that was really funny for me. And then I took a look at some empirical research and which supported it from Statistics Canada and the Census Canada that they release all public information. I could see like apartment houses downtown, like those ones are the first ones to take a dive and the last ones to go up. 
So then I started looking into condos and that's when I learned about condo fees. <laughs> as soon as I learned what condo fees were, I stayed well and truly away from it. And then, so I started looking into more research about single unit housing. That's when I kind of like realized, you know what, this is probably our safest way to go. And uh, so we took a look at about, I think like seven or eight different houses before we found like my kind of like safe zone in terms of like assessing risk and assessing like my return from there. So that's how I just got into it. So you ended up going to the detached and then were you looking for a suite it like above and below type property? Is that the profile you were looking for? Yeah, yeah. So when I started looking at like single semi-detached or detached houses, the best thing was that ratio that we were just talking about a little bit before. You take your whole unit. So what I mainly looked for is uh, one step away from being legal or it is legal. So you have like a legal downstairs basement unit and you have like the upstairs unit. I just took a look at if I take possession of this house, what's the fastest I could get a tenant in? So for me, it was like, if I can get a tenant in for the whole house, that's okay. But if I can get two tenants in for one upstairs, one downstairs, that's less risk for me. What that ended up looking like is I found one property where they were just one step away from making it legalized. So I was able to use that and kind of negotiate saying, hey, like, it's not really legalized. You know, what I can do is we kind of like negotiated it, like, I'll take care. They were in the process of legalizing it. But I kind of told them, like, I'll take care of that process. You just like, you know, negotiate the price with me. And then so that was for one. And then the other one was a little bit trickier. I had to get some windows replaced and get some smoke detectors, some sprinklers, you know, like you're required for legality. So that kind of thing. So typically I looked at anything that was between like 250 to 300 range, because these are the houses that the standard deviation for these houses over the last 10 years from the average deviated the least. So to me, that means less risk. So anything below 300 is least risk for me. And if I can get a tenant in within like, let's say two to three weeks, like minimal effort in, get the paperwork approved by the city while the tenant stays there, all we really need to do is the turnover is very, 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 very quick. So that was mainly my like target for these properties. And what year was that that you were jumped in? Uh, so this was a, <laughs> this is really funny. So in 2020, we started looking, I want to say after April. Yeah, after April. And so we ended up buying like within like four or five months, we ended up buying like three houses just ready to found some deals I like, found a condition I was okay. And then we just ended up getting it and getting the tenants in there. Oh, that's awesome. Any kind of renovations or big surprises? Because they're likely older properties, right? It's not going to be a newer property given that price range and, and there's this suite and stuff underneath. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So they were in the Northeast, so they're a little bit older. And so in terms of that is, again, there were some stuff like I had to change the windows out to make sure they were so like uh, egress as, as windows. The, that kind yeah. Of thing. The, it had to be like a certain dimensions for like fires as per the yeah. city Calgary regulations. But, you know, like the economic life of a house is between like 40 to 60 years. So when I take a look at the houses that were built, like between like anything after 1980, like I was honestly, like I was really okay with it because again, like the price ratio for 300 to how many tenants I can get in there. So I was lucky to find properties that weren't in like really, really like awful shape, you know, where the roof's about to collapse. Again, like I did my due diligence. I had a property inspector come in. I investigated some stuff. I searched it up on Google, YouTube videos. Hey, 
what should I look for when I buy a house? <laughs> I just did my inspections like that, did all the mold checking. The only real issue, I guess I would say is, and this is something I learned on the job as well, because I was not aware of it. So we had this one unit where the basement floor was completely newly renovated. And so the previous sellers, they were moving um, from Calgary to Edmonton. And so they were in a rush to sell their house. And I found the property to be really, really great. So I was in a rush to buy it and get the deal finalized too. But the floor was a little bit uneven just because they had done it. They didn't wait for that concrete to completely settle and flatten. Because what happens is you pour the concrete in there and then you wait for it to dry. It's uneven. You pour it again to make sure it's completely even. So they kind of like skip that third and the second stage and they just put the floorboards right after the first concrete pour. And what ended up happening is I had like uneven floors. So being completely new at this, I had no idea um, what this would mean in the long term. So what I ended up seeing is six or seven months later, my tenants, they're walking, they notice like the floorboards, if they think they're uneven, they're starting to break. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking is, oh, damn, that's something new. Like now on, if I see something like this, I'll probably have like my guy come in and fix it. So that kind of thing. Other than that, the properties were in good condition. I did my due diligence. So there wasn't anything really surprising about it. And then with the city, was it pretty easy? Because I know the city's rules have changed if it's post-2018 or pre-2018, right? So these ones older than 2018, how was it working with the city and getting those actually legalized? How was that process? Yeah, it's actually super, super simple. Like all this information is available in the city of Calgary website. All I really have to do is make a call at 311 and the people there, like the advisors, I want to say, they're super helpful. They kind of guide me through the process. The three main um, rules they have is your windows have to be a certain size to make sure that in case of fire, the bedroom windows have to be a certain dimensions. You need a smoke detector and a carbon monoxide detector in every room and you need a sprinkler in your furnace house. So other than that, nothing really crazy. And the whole communication was super clear. This was during COVID time. So all I had were video inspections. It was a little bit easier, I'm assuming, just because you don't have like a person coming in and taking a look at like every single detail. <laughs> Other than that, it was super simple. Again, I feel like when I was doing my research in terms of like, you know, like me doing Google research or YouTube research, it was like, oh, you have to know your ROI. You have to know like all of this, building a real estate empire. You have to make sure all of this is good. And it was almost overwhelming. So when I like literally did it by, you know, like, let me just see what happened. It was a lot more simpler than I would have expected if I just learned it from YouTube, which again, like I do not want to discourage anyone from doing their due diligence. I feel like everyone should just learn everything you can, but at the same time, it's not as challenging as, uh, as it seems. Oh, that's awesome. So taking what you learned from actually jumping in and buying these investment properties, what advice would you give to someone, you know, that's kind of sitting on the fence and maybe looking at doing their first real estate deal? Yeah, I mean, from my experiences and my learning experiences, I would say like two key things. It's impossible to do this alone, for sure. Even if you're doing this full time, it's impossible to do it alone. So whether you're doing it with your family or friends, or you have a business partner or a team, just make sure that it's with good company. Because I could not have done this or I cannot maintain this just by myself. I have my amazing family, like mom, my mom, my sister, my dad, they all help me with this. Whenever I'm stuck somewhere, I go to them for questions. We sit together, we strategize. We have like monthly meetings for when something goes wrong or we talk about like, okay, what do we learn from this month and where to go from there? So that's number one. So make sure if you're getting into a business with someone, know them well, make sure that you trust them and that their work ethic matches yours. 
because oftentimes if the work ethic is not there, it's really hard to take it all on your own shoulders. And a lot of people that I've met doing this is also doing it part-time. So they have a full-time job somewhere and they just manage a property on the part-time. If you're especially someone like that, that, that's really challenging to just do it on your own. And the second thing I would say is uh, this kind of like applies after you've, you know, like done major investments, got your properties is tenants. A good tenant will save you three months of headache, I like to say. Mm -hmm. So make sure you have a very good process for filtering and screening your tenants and making sure you pick the right ones and those decisions. Did you end up having a tenant and a learning experience? You know, can you kind of go through that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And this was in my early, early days, like I want to say three months into managing. I had this one property that was for an upstairs unit. So I had the basement rented out. I was just looking for an upstairs tenant. And I think it was like, we're looking at the first month without any tenant there. So my mortgage is just barely breaking even from the downstairs rent. I need to get a tenant in there as soon as possible. So we had this lady come in. She was like, hey, I'm ready to pay you the damage deposit right away. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, can I just see your employment verification? And she showed me a photo on her phone, like a paste up. I was like, all right, let's get you in. I'll give you the keys. And then it started to coming like every day. Uh, I think within the first 10 days of her moving in, I got like about a list of like 12 different things she needed fixing. <laughs> She's like, I need an electric panel upstairs. I'm like, what do you mean electric panel upstairs? She was talking about a circuit board that we usually find in our basement, you know? If it's something's overloaded, you just quickly change it. She's like, yeah, I have really huge fish tanks. Sometimes oh, wow. they're overloaded. I don't want to keep going. You have to build me one up here. I'm like, that's a $15,000 task. <laughs> the crazy thing is like, I actually spoke to my electrician. He's asking me like, why are you doing this? Why are you even entertaining this? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and so, yeah, a good tenant will save you a month's worth of like headache, phone calls, missed calls, like communication. Yeah, so for sure, that was a big learning experience for me. And to be honest, like, I'm glad I had that because it helped me develop a lot of my processes really, 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 really good. So what would you look for in a property uh, besides cash flow? What are some other things you would look at? Two main things that I generally look for other than like just cash flow. I'm not looking to, you know, like flip any properties, right? Like I don't have uh, the expertise for that. But mainly what I look for is how much can it grow in value? So for example, like the location of it is a big factor in how does it grow. And so one of the big things is I try to buy properties that are right at or under market value. And so what ends up happening is when we get into a factor of within like 10 year horizon and we have a big market jump as they experienced in BC and Ontario, how much do I see my properties go up? So being in a good location, which for me is the Northeast, but I do have a little bit of bias in that I grew up and I lived here my whole life. I believe this is a good place for it simply because they're all the main highways. We're pretty close to all of it. A lot of grocery stores, food stores. We have a bunch of like fulfillment centers coming up just down Métis Trail, Walmart, their fulfillment centers. Amazon, I think, is about to or did recently announce their new fulfillment center coming in the Northeast. Their last one, I believe, was in the South. So these are things that really like increase the value of your property. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of things, I believe that number one, that being important. And number two is a location. And uh, what that means to me is finding tenants as quickly as I can, good tenants as quickly as I can. So being in the Northeast, there are a lot of tenants. So what ends up happening is you have a huge demand of housing. 
which means a lot of tenants. And so I have a lot of selection to make sure like I'm not just stuck with two or three people and it's just choosing between, uh, I'm not really sure if this guy or this guy. It's like seeing like 50 applications and me saying, okay, this guy is the best fit. I know because I have a lot of information about him and I have 50 other people to choose from. So that kind of thinking is what goes on before I really like consider purchasing a property. So you went through that bad tenant scenario. What do you do now to filter or qualify your tenants? Like when you do have your property vacant and now you're going to you know, bring somebody in. Yeah. Number one learning experience for me was to not be desperate. So that was, <laughs> that's something I repeat to <laughs> my parents, like the people that I do this with, like a lot that I want us to be more comfortable in not having a tenant for, let's say like three months then have a bad tenant for three months. Mm. So what I mean by that is I believe when we're desperate, we overlook a lot of like really important, but really small details. Like for example, something as like as if you see their pay stub, just a quick call saying, hey, I have this pay stub from your employee. Do they really work there? Or what can you tell me about this employee? Do they have any sort of like requiring their management classes or you know, they don't really show up. They just kind of like, do they get drunk at their work? <laughs> that kind of thing. So these are like very, very key sort of like background research, I want to kind of say before we take on a tenant. So the process is you have to fill an application with us. So what I did during that bad tenant is I didn't have her fill an application. It was just a word of mouth association. So now we have, you have to fill an application. You have to provide your government provided ID you have to provide a source of your pay stub or a source of income. And we have to see your credit score. And then we do your reference letter. A lot of people can't provide reference letters just because they owned their house, they sold it, now they just want to rent. So in that case, you know, like what's our next workflow for that? So for something like that, we just take an assessment of your like friends or people that would kind of like not co-sign, but kind of like give their word saying, hey, I can tell you this person is good. And again, like, it sounds very simple. Like, yeah, I can just provide my friend's number. Like, they're not going to tell you I'm a bad person if I tell them. Like, hey, uh, just don't tell him I'm a bad person. <laughs> but like, that kind of call, I believe, is good for us, like doing our due diligence in the sense that, okay, I've done everything I can. If that's a bad person or a bad tenant, then it's just fade. Like, it's not up to me. I did the most I can. Yeah. yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, that's good. So are you planning on building your portfolio? Or are you still actively looking for more investment properties? Right now, the way it works is like all these four units that we own. So we are kind of like managing it in-house. So all of us work full-time in our part-time. We have like separate accounts we do it. So ideally, we don't want to be doing this ourselves. We want to give it to a property manager. But uh, when I last around the numbers, we need for sure one or uh, two more to be able to give it to a property manager for them to handle it and pay their fees and for it to generate some sort of profit to us as well. Yeah. So I am looking for some other opportunities, uh, whether it's in the housing, real estate, and I'm also looking at expanding it into some other types of businesses. And the reason for that is I see a lot of opportunities for Calgary. As I mentioned, at the focal point of my whole idea is I see a lot of growth and a lot of people coming here. So a lot of people coming here means increase for demands, demands such as like, I want to say a nail and spa or um, a mechanic shop, you know, like Calgary is not the most public transport friendly city. I almost want to compare it to the growing kind of like history of LA, like Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, you have things like really, really niche type of businesses, you know, like 
a certain type of mechanic that adheres to a certain type of cars or you know you have like a big city what it needs is for people to feed it right so what that means is warehouses if i'm investing in warehouses i can rent it out to let's say like four or five small business owners they give me rent and then they store their products there and everything else is them. I just own that warehouse. So that kind of real estate, I see more of myself expanding into that once I've had like, let's say a property manager managing this, then I can just focus into something else. So that's my long-term goal. In summary, I see just see like a lot of opportunities to grow in Calgary here. Oh, that's awesome. So with your portfolio and the market has pulled back, right? But anything priced below 500,000 is still pretty high demand, especially if it's detached in Calgary. Mm -hmm. So do you have any strategies or anything that you're doing? Are you looking off market or are you still looking on market to try to find that, you know, another property? And then you can share about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say if market has pulled back, I see that as a great opportunity. <laughs> so if yeah. anyone thinks, uh, that's waiting to see that, if you see market pull back, that means it's on sale. <laughs> so go ahead and buy it if you're on the fence for something. And me personally, my strategy I think I'm going to stick to my 300K risk range just because of the research I know. And that's the research up to date. As you can probably tell, I'm very confident in my own research to a fault, I might add. <laughs> a lot of times I'm very stubborn about it too. But for now, I do see like myself just staying within that 250 to 300 range just because I know what to expect from there. I know what kind of repairs to expect. Whereas uh, these like higher kind of like, I consider them to be higher. Anything above like 350, I would say is sort of like in the higher ground. Because at that point, I don't believe that's an investment property. It should be more of like a residential property. If you're living in like a house that's uh, 400K and above or 350K above, like live in it. You deserve it. <laughs> live in it. If you're renting it out, then rent out to where you'll have the most amount of people. Like if you're getting a house for like saying between 400 to 500K, your mortgage payments are going to be about like three 3,000 a month, including insurance, including your property taxes. And for the kind of renters you're going to be expecting within that for you to cover that mortgage, because I'm assuming like, I'm not going to rent out a mortgage if it means that I have to pay some out of my pocket, right? And so that's the kind of idea why I stick to that 250 to 300 range. Yeah, that makes sense. I just want to kind of jump back to the property that you did convert to a legal suite. Do you have any estimates on how much the value may have went up? Like now that, you know, it's no longer illegal that you now have a property that's recognized by the city. Is there anything that where you've done research and you could talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, from my estimate, I would say at least like five to eight K in the total property price for sure. Not only that, but I want to add another point is for one of my other properties, we also added in a garage and that increased our value by 13 to 16 K. So at, what happens is at the end of every fiscal year, the city of Calgary sends you an estimate of what they think your house is worth. When I usually like value my properties before I buy them is number one, the property inspector comes in, they take a look at it. They see like, okay, this is good. This is bad. And then I kind of like ask them to give me an estimate. Okay, if this is bad, how much is it to fix? And then we take a look at, if you're interested in buying a house, you can take a look at what the city valued that house as. And then what you can do is have an appraisal on that house. And the way that appraisal works is they take a look at what's inside the house, like whether you have the siding of your house, whether you have vinyl or whether you have those taco sites. So in terms of something like a hail damage. Oh, like a stucco. Stucco, like stucco, yeah, stucco yeah. yeah. Yeah, stucco. If you have like vinyl sites with hail, it's more prone to being damaged. But if you have a stucco, it's safer, right? 
right? So the, what the appraiser does is they take a value of inside the house and then they take a value of, uh, you know, your nearby property, your neighboring properties to see whether the seller, are they pricing it above the value it should be or below the value it should be. So when we take a look at that, when we added in the extra unit downstairs and then added in the extra garage in another unit, easily like a basement unit, I would say like a five to eight K increase for sure. Also another, depending is if it's a walkout basement or not, if it's a walkout basement, then what happens is you don't share the same entrance, the upstairs unit and downstairs unit, they have different entrances. So if it's a walkout basement, then that increases like 10 K for sure. The garage that you built, did you rent that separately to somebody else or did you just increase the tenant rent on that unit? What was yeah, the driver? It was, it was a little bit of both. So for the first three months, we had sort of like someone, I think they were running a, their own business. I forget exactly what business it is, but he kind of like rented their garage out for me because it was good for his business. And so for three months, he rented it from me. And then I went back to the tenant that was already living there and like, hey, I have this garage. Would you like to rent it for an extra amount of dollars a day? And so he was happy because he gets to put his car inside when it's, in, when it's winter and, and he's happy with that. So right now, that's the way it works. It's the house and then the garage separately. Yeah, because in Calgary, depending on the location of the garage, I mean, a detached double car garage could be three to four hundred dollars more per month. Yeah. Like, to, yeah, to rent ours that out. was detached single car garage, so a a single, little okay. bit less, but yeah. So that currently it's being rented out at one fifty additional to their rent. Uh, to their rent, yeah. So you get a bit of payback for the money you for, put for in garage, over yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, yeah over time. And plus the value of your overall property increases as well. And the thing is, like, as value of house houses go up, that kind of thing, like, it works as a multiplier. So that garage will be worth, like, more than what I built it for in, say, like, 10 years from now, for sure. Yeah. And I think you appeal to a demographic of renters that, like, especially with Calgary having the winters, having a garage to park your vehicle and stuff is really appealing to renters, right? So in storage, yeah. that kind of thing. For sure, yeah. for sure. Another thing I would like to add is uh, pets. So in my experience, I've seen uh, a lot of people just like, they don't even want pets on any kind of property, whether it's investment, residential or whatever. So one thing I did for one of my properties is they had their bedrooms carpeted, but not the overall like unit. So for upstairs unit, you had your living room and everything else. It was just hardwood floor. But for some reason, the basement was carpeted. So the first thing I did was took those carpets right out. And so what happens is uh, if you have no carpets, allowing a pet to stay there is super easy. And then what you can do is have a pet fee. So a monthly pet fee. And so that kind of like, if it's something like a cat, cats don't really do a lot of damage. So you can charge like 20, 30 bucks a month extra for like a cat fee there. It's a pet fee. But dogs, they're a little bit more challenging because, you know, you have like bigger size dogs. They might like scratch here and there. There's some like judgment to be used there, but I do encourage people to, especially if it's an investment property, you should be renting out to people with pets because a lot of people have pets <laughs> and yeah. a lot of people look for places where they don't want to give, give up their pet. They want to stay with their pets. So if you have a pet, you automatically appeal to a lot more tenants. Yeah, for sure. That's great. I can just gonna ask you some kind of like rapid fire questions, you know, just throw your answers out at me. So what's an app or software that you just couldn't live without? Google Sheets, for sure. Google Sheets for me. I'm a data analyst by nature, <laughs> as you can tell. So for me, Google Sheets. That's awesome. What's something people can't find out about you on Google? Oh, <laughs> that's a funny one. I think I mentioned it briefly. I had visited Korea recently, and one of the big things was Korean skincare products. 
And, well, your skin uh, looks great on this video. <laughs> Better <laughs> than <you>. mine. <laughs> we have a very, very large selection of skincare for men, which I never really thought about it. Like I was like, skincare, I just put on some like moisturizer. That's okay. But no, now I have a skincare routine. <laughs> oh, I may have to talk to you after the show here. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite book? My favorite book, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but... Yes, yeah, I've read it, yeah. Oh, it's that's good. awesome. Yeah, funny story. I didn't come across this book as like sort of leisure time reading. I was in high school and my my English teacher, it was a required reading for us. And I was like, ah, why? Yeah. And then I ended up reading it. I loved every single like line of that book. It was a book that really, really had a profound effect on me. There's a lot of celebrities that love that book too and promote it. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah, it's, it's a very famous book, which I didn't know about it until I read it. And I started doing some research about him and I kind of realized like, wow, it's everyone loves this book. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what kind of activities do you do outside of work and real estate investing? Yeah, I play a lot of soccer. I do really enjoy being active, like going out, traveling. I enjoy in researching and investing in the financial markets. Recently, one thing I started taking up was studying for my CFA. So starting to study from this upcoming September. So I'll be working towards that designation. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your real estate investing knowledge. What's the way people get a hold of you online? What's the best way to kind of find you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, same name, Mohsin Saeed. You can uh, search up and uh, feel free to reach out if you have any questions, anything I can help you with. If you're looking for a house, you can contact me. No problem. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, thanks, man. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent. I also have a certification as a master home inspector. I'm currently partnering on a property flip in Calgary with Shirley Evans, who I consider to be a professional property flipper. Shirley has a wealth of real estate knowledge. We're going to be offering Eventbrite meetups at the property. So if you're in the Calgary area, we'd love for you to stop by and check it out. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, my number is 587-893-2272. You can follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey or check out my website and that's just CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, you can also join our new Facebook group, Calgary Real Estate Investing Group. That's Craig for short. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.